have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. So if you were at Amos last week, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. It'll be right there. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, so it's easy to run right by it. So this morning we're going to get to do something we don't get to do very often. We're going to read an entire book of the Bible together right now. All right? The book of Obadiah, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. He's talking to Edom. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, how his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall come over, cover you. You shall be cut off forever on the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your Deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray to the Lord together. This morning, Lord, even as your people, even as those who have the Spirit of God, 
we are reminded how so often we, like Edom, are deceived by our pride. Are deceived into believing that we're better than we are. Are deceived into believing that we're more righteous than we are. Are deceived into believing that we're more worthy than we are. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would open up our eyes. But Lord, just like Judah in the exile, we live among Babylon and living among Babylon. We see the world is not as it is. And yet you assure your people, you assure your people that the day of the Lord is coming. And in the day of the Lord, the righteous shall triumph and your people shall possess the land. I pray that you would assure your church. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the fuss, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of the discouragement, assure your church. Remind them that the day of the Lord is coming soon. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that we enjoy is to watch people fall. There are no TikTok videos or America's Funniest Home videos of the courageous mother with four bags of groceries and two kids traversing a slippery parking lot successfully all the way to her car without falling to get everybody in and to get dried off and to make it their way home. But if you have an icy patch, a couple of steps, and a doorbell camera, you've got gold. You've got gold. We'll watch that for days and days and days, won't we? We'll send it to all of our friends to make sure that they see it. It's not just physical falls that we enjoy watching, though. It's it's metaphorical ones as well. There are no podcasts that are written about the pastor who pastors the same congregation of a few dozen people for 40 years faithfully loving them sacrificially and ministering to them in the midst of their brokenness and preaching their funerals and declaring the word of the Lord in broken but effective ways through the Spirit of God. No, podcasts are written about the mega churches with superstar pastors who have spectacular blow-ups in the end. We prefer to watch the falls. We prefer to watch the falls. One person has said that we have an addiction in our culture to failure porn. That we have an insatiable thirst and an insatiable appetite to see the other failures of others. And if you've ever been slowed down on the interstate where everybody is rubbernecking to see the crash and the bent metal, you'll know that this is the truth. Why is that? Why is it that we have such an addiction to failure porn? Why is it that we so are entertained by the falls of others? I think there's a few reasons. I think, first of all, it makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? It makes us feel better about ourselves. We may say, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got a lot of issues, but at least I'm not like that. It makes us feel maybe in some ways justified in the things that we're doing. The the things that we're doing in our lives haven't led to the kind of crash that we've seen in the lives of others. And so we feel better about the, the insecurities of our own pathways and the insecurities about our own decisions. Maybe it makes us feel a little more approved than other people. We think, we think, well, obviously God has come against that person. Obviously that person is reaping what they've sown. But, but I am living profitably. I am living above the board. And so in some way I must have the approval of God. I must even have the acceptance of God. My way must be better than their way. For some of us it's an opportunity too. 
We enjoy the falls of others, particularly in those places around us, because perhaps the falls of others allow us an opportunity to show ourselves. If, if someone loses their job that's one step ahead of you, maybe you can get their job and receive the promotion. If a pastor falls around, maybe you can go before your congregation and receive more admiration and more exaltation. Maybe the fall of others is an opportunity for you to assert yourself, assert your goodness, assert your agenda. So why is it that we have an addiction to failure porn? It probably can be boiled down to a single word. Pride. The falls of others seem to stroke the egos and the prides of men. That it makes us feel good about us. It makes us feel bigger when others are smaller. It makes us feel higher when others are lower. It allows us to continually tell ourselves exactly how good and capable we really are. This is the message of Obadiah. Judah has fallen to the hands of the Babylonians and the Edomites have come and assisted the Babylonians and have ransacked the city and plundered the city for all of its goods. And there is Edom celebrating in the fall of Judah. They are enjoying the failure porn, you might say. It's making them feel better about themselves. It's making them feel better about their positions. It's making them feel better about all of their ancestry. It's making them feel better about their history. To watch there as the people of God fall on their faces at the hands of the Babylonians. But what you have is a warning. It's a warning from God through Obadiah to the Edomites that things are not all as they may seem. That things are not just as They intend to be. And he gives them a a warning, but he's giving this to Judah. And it's a warning not just for the Edomites, but a warning for Judah too, that they would not be like the Edomites, that they would avoid what has happened with the Edomites. And as he is warning the Edomites of what has happened through them, and he is warning them of their pride and haughtiness, he is at the same time assuring his people that what they see with their eyes is not all that there is. What they have experienced in their tragedy and in their trauma is not as good as it's going to be. There is a future that is different than what they have laid their eyes upon. This morning, again, I I remind you that we're going to be ordaining Daniel and I'm going to be addressing Daniel. But you know, the ironic thing is, is when you read the qualifications of a pastor, the qualifications of a pastor is to be a Christian. It's to be a Christian. The characteristics of a pastor, it ought to be especially true of a pastor. It ought to be especially true of an elder. But it ought to be true of every follower of Christ. So I'm going to address Daniel. But in addressing Daniel, I'm addressing us all. That what ought to be especially true in your life, Daniel, ought to be represented at large among the people of God in the congregation of the Spirit of the Lord. So I want us to see this morning both the warning that Obadiah gives and the assurance that, war- that Obadiah gives. And under the primary warning, we'll see a series of warnings. And under the primary assurance, we'll see a series of assurances. The first warning that I want you to see is that pride destroys the strong. Pride destroys the strong. See, you'll remember that uh, Isaac had two sons. He had twin boys, Jacob And Esau. And as Isaac was preparing to have his new sons, Rebekah, an angel of the Lord, came to Rebekah and gave her a vision from the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said this to Rebekah. He said that the older will serve the younger and both sons will become a great nation. Now, when we hear that, we might think that if the older is going to serve the younger, that must mean that the younger is going to be stronger than the older. But the Bible says that the opposite is actually true. 
That when Jacob is born, he is a hairy, masculine man. And he is a man that likes to work in the field. And he is the apple of his father's eye. But Jacob, by comparison, is an effeminate man. He dwells in tents, the Bible says. I think it's, he likes to be with his mama, okay? He likes to hang at home and and play with his sewing kit and play Xbox down in the basement. Okay, that's the picture of Jacob. But uh, Esau, Esau is a, a brutish man, an impulsive man, and Jacob is a cunning, winsome, and, and sly man. And so J- Jacob finds Esau on a low day, on a day in which his appetites are full, and he deceives him out of his birthright. Later on, he deceives Jacob out of the blessing of his father Isaac so that he has stolen both the birthright of, of Esau and the blessing of Esau. And there is a conflict between the brothers that carries forward all the way here to the book of Obadiah. See, in fact, both sons do become a nation. Both sons receive new names. Jacob is renamed as Israel, and there's a nation of Israel that takes on that name. Esau is renamed Edom, and there is a nation that is renamed after that, that carries forward the name of Edom. And the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom carry forward the conflict of Jacob and Esau across all of the generations. Over time, what begins to take place is that the nation of Israel begins to represent the nation that God has chosen, and the nation of Edom represents the nation that God has rejected, and the conflict that ensues as a result. And in fact, by the time we get to to Obadiah, Edom has become an archetype. They They have become the representative of what it means to be an enemy of God. And so what we see here is how God responds to his enemies, And what we see is also warnings that we ourselves might not behave and live as though we are the enemies of God. That's important, isn't it? Did you know that even as a person of God, even as someone who knows Christ, even as someone who walks every day seeking to honor the Lord, that you over enough time with enough pride can become to live and act as though you are an enemy of the Lord? And so there's warnings here for Judah, warnings here for Edom, warnings here for us. First, I want you to see that you must not sin pridefully. You must not sin pridefully. Do not sin pridefully. This is how the pride strong. Pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? Edom was in a particular geographical location that made them hard to attack and easy to defend. It talks here about them being in the clefts of the rock. In fact, the name Edom means red. And it's representative of the geographical location. They are up in the high country. They are in the craggy rocks, the red rocks that are there on the edges of the promised land, living in what appears to be an unapproachable and inaccessible and unassailable area. Well, when Babylon comes against Judah and Babylon storms the gates of Jerusalem and begins to parade off the people of God as war trophies, you can imagine there's Edom up in the clefts of the rock looking down on the lower plain and they're thinking to themselves, that could never happen to me. That could never happen to us. Babylon, good luck finding your way up the mountain here. We'll come down and assist you, but you'll never be able to come up to us. 
That they begin to picture themselves as though they are aloft like the eagle. That their nest is set among the stars. That, that is, they are unconquerable. They are, they are in, uh, unavailable. They are unassailable. They live in fortresses that are impregnable. That they are the mighty eagle flying above all of the peasants below in the valley. And that they cannot be conquered. So in their minds, they can do whatever they want to do. In their minds, they can live however they want to live. In their minds, they can take advantage of the misfortune of the Judahites. In their minds, they can profit from the conquering of the Babylonians. Because who is going to come and get them? And what does Obadiah say to them? The pride of your heart has deceived you. Their pride had deceived them. Their strength had deceived them. Their ability had deceived them. They were not nearly as strong as they believed themselves to be. Did you know no one sins, Daniel, especially for you? No one sins more audaciously. No one sins more pridefully than the pastors of the church. No one. We are the ones that give the warnings to the church and then don't heed the warnings. We are the ones that give the instructions to the church and then don't take our own instruction. We are the ones that call the church to repentance and then live obstinate and unrepentant. And if we're not careful, brother elders, listen to me, if we're not careful, we will become like the Edomites, hiding in the clefts of the rocks, hiding behind the gifts that God has given to us and deceiving ourselves into believing that we're stronger than we are that we're better than we are, that we're more untouchable than we really are. Tim Keller tells a story about a a pastor. He would have been considered in everyone's eyes to be ultra successful. He pastored an explosive megachurch. He was highly regarded by all of his peers. And it was discovered after some decades that he had had a long-term inappropriate relationship, that he had been living a double life the entire time. And Tim Keller says that he knew the man, and one day they were, went to lunch after the man's very public fall. He said, and I asked him, I just want to know, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you every week stand before the people of God and teach them the word of God, knowing that you had this secret behind you? And he said that what the man told him stood out to him. That he would say that Monday through Saturday, he would live... However he wanted to live, he would indulge in his secret life. He would enjoy his secret sin. He said, and then Saturday night would come. And Saturday night would come and he would be broken in guilt before God. And he would weep before God. And he would repent before God, uh, uh, believing that he was repenting before God. And he would say, never again will I do this. Never again will I live like this. Never again. I'm ending the relationship now. I'm ending the situation now. From now on, God, I will live differently. But then on Sunday morning. And Sunday morning, he was such an immensely gifted man that he was able to stand before the congregation. His gifts were able to take over. He was able to hide in the clefts of the rocks of the gifts that God had equipped him with. And his gifts would take over to the point that people would be saved. And people would heap praise upon him. And people would admire him. And his church would continue to grow. And he would go home on Sunday evening feeling justified in his sin. That apparently it was not as bad as maybe he had thought it was because God had shown his approval. Oh, but Daniel, he fell. His pride had deceived him. Brother elders, he fell. His pride had deceived him. 
brothers and sisters of Iron City, he fell because his pride had deceived him. We can hide behind our gifts for a while. We can hide behind our charisma for a while. We can hide behind our personality for a while. But eventually there is one who made the eagle. There is one who made the clefts of the rocks. There is one who is able to penetrate the most impregnable fortress. There is one that is able to overcome the greatest platform and he is the Lord. And before the Lord, we will be answered before Pride always comes before the fall, and where there are proud, there will be fallen. There will be fallen. Daniel, don't hide behind your gifts, brother. Don't hide behind your influence, brother. Don't hide behind your reputation, brother. Live truthfully in the face of God. Live truthfully in the face of God. The second warning that I want you to see, and how pride destroys the strong, is I want you to see do not profit unethically. Do not profit unethically. So in Edom's mind, when Babylon comes and they take over Judah, now the roles have finally reversed. Remember, they have the long tradition dating all the way back to Esau to feeling like they had lost what was rightfully theirs. They were supposed to have the birthright. They were supposed to be the greater nation. They were supposed to be the apple of God's eye. They had lost the birthright. They had lost the blessing of Isaac. And so Babylon comes and it storms the gate, they storm the gates of Jerusalem and Edom thinks, we'll pitch in. We'll join in, make an alliance with Babylon, overcome our enemies. And then that which was rightfully ours from the beginning will finally be ours. We'll finally be able to enjoy all of the territory, be able to enjoy all of the, mil- of the land that flows with milk and honey. But there is a warning here given to them. Behind the back, in in the background, they think they have taken away all of the valuables of Judah. They think they have taken away all the wealth of Judah. They think they have inherited all the land of Judah. But God says, not so fast, my friend. Not so fast. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If gape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? Here's what he's saying. Babylon came and you came and you ransacked, you destroyed the city of Judah and you took what you wanted, but wasn't there something left? Well, I will come to you and I will come against you. And when I am finished with you, Edom, there will not be a nugget to remain. There will not be a dollar left behind. There will not be a silver coin left behind. There will not be a grape forgotten on the vine. I will completely raise the land to the ground and I will raise you to the ground. And, that, and you will wish there would have been another army that would have come. And you will wish there would have been someone else that would have robbed you. Because I will flatten you to the ground. And the warning is clear enough. The people of God, the people of God are not an opportunity for personal profit. The people of God are not an opportunity for personal profit. And there are far too many times today, there are far too many cases today, and there are far too many headlines today in which people are leveraging the pastorate as a pathway for personal profits. We were to sit and to learn from Edom anything. It is what Peter reminds the elders all the way back in the first century in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, do not do anything for shameful gain. It's what Paul tells to Timothy when he says to Timothy that there will be those who will seek to profit from godliness. That is one of the surest markers of a false teacher is someone who is in it for the prophets. 
But what we must stop and ask ourselves is what are the profits? What does it mean to have shameful gain? It's not just financial gain, although it is that. It's those who have an agenda they want to address. It's those who want to be well thought of. It's those who want to have admiration. It's those who want to have prominence. It's those who want to prey upon the people of God to be able to have some standing in the world and to disregard what the call of God is, to discard the needs of the people just so that the people will like me, just so that the people will care for me, just so that the people will hallow my name rather than hallowing the name of the Lord. So Daniel... Brother elders, brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, what are our motives? What are our motives? What are our motives in serving the body of Christ? What are our motives in preaching the funerals of the beloved? What are our motives as we counsel with others? What are our motives as we preach the word of God? What are our motives as we lead the congregation in song? What are our motives as we lead teenagers and disciple teenagers? Is it that I would be well thought of? Is it that other people would think that I am a great pastor or I am a great preacher or I am a great youth pastor or I am a great worship pastor? Is it that they would recognize me and recognize my gifts? Is it that they would rubber stamp my agenda as their own? Or is it that the glory of God would fill the nations? Is it that the people of God would be sanctified and ready to present before Christ himself? What are our motivations? Oh, Daniel, don't do anything for shameful gain. The people of God do not exist for personal profit. The people of God are not your opportunity to go and prove yourself as a leader. The people of God are an opportunity for you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after the Lord Jesus. Another warning. Do not live forgetfully. Do not live forgetfully. You'll remember Esau's story. Esau was an impulsive man with insatiable appetites. Esau was the kind of man that he lived for the here and now. He lived to satisfy his belly. He lived to be able to enjoy his life in the moment to the fullest. And so he comes in one day from from a long day of hunting and he says, I am starving near to the point of death. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. For a bowl of soup. He's a man that lives as though there is no future. He's the man that lives as though there is no account to give. He's a man that lives as though it's not going to matter what he has tomorrow, only what he gets to enjoy and experience today. And so he sells his life, and he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. But there is a day that's accounting. See, that's exactly what Edom is doing here. They're picking up the mantle of their forefather. They're picking up the mantle of their ancestor Edom. And they're living as though they won't give an account. They're just enjoying all the spoils of battle. They're just enjoying the new alliance they have with Babylon. They're just enjoying the idea that the tables have turned. And finally, the mighty Judah has fallen. And they are there singing in the clefts of the rock. Singing songs of cheer and praise that they have finally seen the mighty fall down. That is, they're living like today is all that they have to worry about. They're living to the satisfaction of their bloodthirst. They're living to the satisfaction of their appetites. But what God says through Obadiah is there is a day of reckoning that is to come. 
There is a day of accounting that is to come. In just six verses, I want you to see this. In just six verses, the day, the word day comes up 11 times. He's trying to say something. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day, that's one, that you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his Wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You were like one of the Babylonians. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And as you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be done as though they have never been done. Do you hear what he's saying? There is a day coming in which, verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. You will reap what you have sown. That all of these days of living for the moment, all of these days living as though there is no account, all of these days is living as though there is no future to answer for, all of these days are going to give way to the day and the day of judgment is going to come and you are going to reap what you have sown all of those days. So you are living forgetful of the future. You are living forgetful of what will come. You're living forgetful of the account that you will face. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do, isn't it? We are too prone to live like Esau. We are too prone to trade in our future for a bowl of soup. We are too prone to live for our appetites and live to satisfy our mouths and to satisfy our bloodlust and to look down on the fall of others and to celebrate the success in our own lives. Oh, but there is a day coming. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that every Christian, every man, every woman, every person, whether you know God or you don't know God, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And standing before the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account for all of the good and all of the bad that we have done in our lives. And in that moment, we will reap what we have sown. But Daniel, I would point you to the other point teachings of scripture that say not only will every Christian stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account but we as elders in the body of Christ will stand before the judgment seat and give a greater account in James chapter 3 verse 1 the apostle James says not many of you should become teachers not many of you not many of you should become teachers my brothers why why shouldn't many of us try to be teachers James why shouldn't many of us seek to be elders James why shouldn't many of us seek to stand before the people of God and teach the word of God James for, here's the reason, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The author of Hebrews looks to the congregation. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why, why should the congregation obey their leaders? Why should the, the congregation submit to their leaders? Why should the congregation care anything about what their leaders have to say? Because leaders who are wise, leaders who are leading well, live in the accountability of God. For they, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Not many people should want to be teachers, Daniel, because you'll be judged with greater strictness. That should send a chill down your spine and mine. 
Not many of us should want to try to shepherd and to lead a congregation because we will give an account for the congregation that as they prepare to stand before the Lord for the way that we prepared them to stand. I've heard it said that as we often give over to church growth and commit ourselves to growing the church and having the biggest church that we, should, we, we, we can have and having the biggest crowd that we can have, that we ought to do that with trepidation. And I want our church to grow. But I can't remember which preacher it was, but one said, I, I assume to believe that on the day of judgment, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I will believe that my church was big enough as I stand to give an account for each of their lives. So Brother Elder... Church member, prepare yourself to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Commit yourself to Christ and surrender yourself to Christ. But Daniel, in particular, as one who will give a greater account and face a stricter judgment, prepare yourself to offer yourself before the Lord. That's what the ordination is. The ordination is a moment in which you are receiving the affirmation from your congregation that you're one that is set aside for a stricter judgment. That you're one that is taking upon yourself a responsibility to... Plead the case of the gospel before the people of God in preparing them. Walk every day. Walk every day in remembrance of this. Don't live forgetfully. Don't live forgetfully. There's a warning. Pride destroys the strong. So we must not sin pridefully. We must not profit unethically. We must not live forgetfully. But then there is an assurance that grace upholds the weak. That grace upholds the weak. Daniel, if I were in your shoes at this point, I would be feeling quite heavy. But brother, we are gospel preachers, and the gospel does not leave us in despair. The gospel does not leave us at the ends of our own works. The gospel does not leave us at the ends of our own strength. The gospel offers us grace to prepare for that judgment. The gospel offers us grace and strength to prepare these people for their judgment. The gospel doesn't say, all right, there it is, go live it. The gospel says, let me fill you with the strength that you need. Let me fill you with the, with the hope that you need. Let me set in front of you the assurances that you, you don't have to do this by yourself. You know, if you think of Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau, there's a comparison there in the Bible that is something very similar to the comparison between Saul and David. That if we were to choose the son of the promise... To carry the promise forward, all of us would have chosen Esau. Esau was the strapping one. Esau was the strong one. Esau was the impressive one. Esau was the man's man. There's old little Jacob playing Halo down in the basement. None of us would have chosen that guy. There's little Jacob playing with a sewing kit, helping mom out in the kitchen. None of us would have chosen that guy. Right? No, 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 no. We would have wanted the strong one. And this is where we begin to get to a difference in Obadiah's message from the message of all the other minor prophets that we've heard. You, you, you listen to Hosea, you listen to Amos, you listen to Joel, and you say, woe is me. All of them are preaching about a judgment that is to come for the people of God. But when you come to the book of Obadiah, he's talking about the judgment of the enemies of the people of God and the assurance that grace is coming for the people. That there's, they, that yes, hard days have come. Babylon has marched upon Judah the day of the Lord has met them in the moment of their judgment, but the grace of God is going to come in and uphold them. And I wonder if there are some of you, as we've went through these, you've thought, this is heavy, this is hard, I am under conviction. Maybe what you need is a reminder that grace is here to uphold you, brothers and sisters. Grace is here to uphold you. In fact, as we think about the, the son that we would have chosen, as we think about the fact that we would have chosen Esau, none of us would have chosen Jacob. 
We think about the impossibility of the work that is in front of us as ministers, Daniel. God always chooses the weak son to carry forward the promise. God always chooses the weak son to proclaim his glory. God always chooses the one nobody else will choose so that through him he can make known how great he is. So that through him he can make known that it is not this guy. It is not his giftedness. It is not his ability. It is my grace. And that is oxygen in the life of an elder. That is oxygen in the life of an elder. That the mo- This morning is not about you doubling down. It's not about you looking within. This is about you surrendering to grace. To think, I could never, but he always will. And so he begins to give a, a series of assurances to Judah. Judah, who's there, who has been paraded down the streets of Babylon. Who's been paraded by Nebuchadnezzar. Who's been, whose graves have been danced on by the Edomites. That they might know that there is hope to come. So he promises them that, your, that their promises will endure. And he's promising me and he's promising you, your promises will endure. There's at least two promises that are in peril here. Two promises that are in peril. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, I have it there uh, at the bottom of the screen. It says, uh, this is all the way back to the time of Abraham. This is before Jacob. This is before Esau. This is before Isaac. This is all the way back to father Abraham. And God makes Abraham a promise. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. But here's Edom. Here's Edom who has come against Judah. Here's Edom who has come against the the chosen people that have carried forward the promise of God. And it doesn't look like they're cursed. Oh, this promise is in peril, but it's not in peril. Genesis chapter 25, moving forward to the promise that was made to Rebekah about those twin boys that were in her womb. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two people, two peoples from within you, within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Right now, that's not how it looks, does it? Here's the older, here's Edom, and they're dancing on the graves of the Judaites. Here's Edom, and they're dancing on the descendants of Jacob. It appears as though the younger is serving the greater. But the point, the point through Obadiah is that there is a but God moment to come. The point in Obadiah is that this is a comma and not a period. The point in Obadiah is that the situation will not always be as it appears as though it is right now. But God, in Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord, the Lord has spoken. What is the promise? How, how, how can he sit there and say that the promises of God are going to be kept? How can it be said that the curses that were to come against the people who stand against God's people were in fact going to be reality? How can it be certain that you can know that the Edomites that come against the, the house of Judah, the house of Jacob will eventually fall? He says, for the Lord has spoken. For the Lord has spoken. In fact, this is the end of the oracle. If you were to see this in Hebrew, you'd see this is the end of the poetry. And how did it start? All the way up in verse 2? It started with the Lord. The Lord. As a matter of fact, it starts with the Lord. Adonai God is how it's phrased in the beginning. And these are pointing to the sovereignty of God. That the hope that they have, that the promises will endure, is that their God is sovereign. See, brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God is the security of his people. The sovereignty of God is the security of his people. 
Not the state of their living. Not current affairs. Not the newspaper. Not the Congress. Not the president. Not the army. Not the, not the uh, weapons of mass destruction. Not your own righteousness and your own morality. Not your own inner strength or your own self-esteem and self-confidence. None of those things are the security of his people. The sovereignty of God is the security of his people. And when God has said it, God will do it. And when God has said it, you can trust it. And just as the sovereignty of God is the security of his people, the sovereignty of God is the security of his pastors. See, the paradox of the Christian life is that you can't live it. And Daniel, the paradox of the Christian ministry is that you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't make people come. You can't do it. You can't make people serve. You can't make people convert. You can't make people change. You can't make people give. You can't make people do anything. You can't do the ministry. You can't do the work. You can't make the gospel take root in the heart of a man. A miracle has to happen for that to take place. So what's your hope? If you feel like you have to do it, and brother elders, listen to me. All of you who are serving in a ministry today, listen to me. If you feel like you have to do it, you will live with, a, as a feeling, with the feelings of a perpetual failure. Because you can't. It's not possible. You'll run yourself into the ground trying. You'll burn yourself out trying because you can't do it. The hope that we have is that God will do it. The hope that we have is that grace is the truth. As a matter of fact, just like Obadiah, the elder has one means. One means. For the Lord has spoken. We open up the word of God and we have nothing to say of our own accord. And anything that we say is probably wrong. Anything we have to say is probably wrong. Except when, with Obadiah, when we can say, for thus saith the Lord. See, the Lord converts through his word. The spirit works through his word. People are changed through his word. What we have is the sovereignty of God through the spirit of God with the word of God. That's what we have. So yeah, we should work hard. We should take responsibility. But we should lean in the sovereignty of God and rest. We should go to bed at night and know that God raises up the harvest while we sleep. Your promises will endure. And your exile will end. Your exile will end. I, I love the way that he frames this up. You, you can imagine being there and it feeling like you've lost everything. Walking up to your, your house has burned to the ground. You can imagine being paraded. Imagine if we were being paraded right now through the streets of Iran. As they were all celebrating and dancing and singing. They're out of their land and not at home. Everything that's familiar to them. Everything that they love. Their entire culture. Their entire way of life. All their ancestry. All of their heirlooms burned to the ground. While their enemies sing up in the clefts of the rock and throw parades and blow trumpets and celebrate. not how it's supposed to be. But those of the Negev shall pass Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephard shall possess the cities of the Negev. And here's what he's saying. The day of the Lord is coming and the exile will be put to, put to rest. The exile will come, go away. 
You know, we can read here, and the exile of Judah in Babylon is like a commentary on our day before the return of Christ, isn't it? Judah looked around, and life was not as it was supposed to be for the promised people of God. And we look around, and life is not the way it's supposed to be for all of us either. We're supposed to have a peace that is without understanding, and yet we're filled with anxiety. We're supposed to be filled with the joy, joy of Christ, and the, it always feels like our joy is under threat. It always feels like our joy is fleeting. It always feels like we're filled more with misery and dismay and the potential for disaster. We look around, and we are a, a tiny little people in the midst of an enormous nation, in the midst of an enormous world, and the world all seems to be turning and pointing at us and laughing at us and celebrating at our demise. The exile doesn't last, brothers and sisters. The exile doesn't last. The exile doesn't last. Babylon doesn't win. And Edom doesn't win. And the parades will be silenced with the shout of the archangel and the sound of a trumpet and the splitting of the sky when the Lord Jesus comes and returns for his church. Oh, yeah. The sojourner Daniel, the sojourner finds their way home. The pilgrim, his journey is going to come to an end. Christian, Christian arrives at the celestial city. All of this, all of the pain, all of the sleepless nights, all of the anxiety, all of the misery, all of the sadness, all of the living in Babylon, all of this is going to end. Christ is coming back for us, brother. So we can live these decades for him. We can do that, can't we, church? We can lay down our lives and live by the grace. We can be upheld throughout as, as the nations laugh at us, as our judgment seems fallen, as, as our people seem to collapse, as the churches seem to die. We can press on, can't we? Our exile is going to end. Our exile is going to end. Your exile is going to end. And your Savior will be exalted. And your Savior will be exalted. It says in verse 21, it's such an interesting word, isn't it? Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's interesting, I circle the word rule because it's the same word that we use to title the book Judges. Judges, right? It's the exact same word. It's shopate in, uh, in the Hebrew. It, and it's a word that often is used to talk about the people that God raises up to deliver his people. See, Israel knew their history. Judah knew their history. This is not the first time they had been in trouble, y'all. This is not the first time the church has been in trouble, y'all. Israel knew their history. And what they knew is that every single time it looked like they were falling, every single time it looked like they were collapsing, God would raise up another judge. God would raise up another savior. God would raise up a new king. God would raise up a new prophet. God would raise up a savior that would be able to deliver them from whatever judgment they were facing. That Yeah, right now the judgment comes against the people of God. But later, but later, now and later, but later, God would raise up saviors that would deliver 
his people. And all of these lowercase saviors would ultimately lead to the savior, the savior that God would raise up who shall go up to Mount Zion. And the way he would go up to Mount Zion is he would ascend up to Mount Calvary and he would spread his arms and he would receive those nails on our behalf and then he would be raised from the grave three days later. And Paul, Paul, this is so interesting, Daniel. Paul says this, this is what the pastor ought to keep on his mind. This is what the elder ought to look forward to. This is how the elder ought to share in the sufferings of Christ. Just before Paul goes to be in heaven himself, he writes his last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he says this, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign. So here come the saviors, they're going to rule. Here comes the savior, the savior is going to send Mount Calvary. He's going to be raised from the grave. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the father. And he's going to rule, he's going to return. He's going to rule over the nations as the coming king over all peoples and all nations. But he's not going to rule alone, y'all. I'm going to rule with him. And Daniel, you're going to rule with him. And Andrew, you're going to rule with him. And Daniel, you're going to rule with him. And Robin, you're going to rule with him. Church, we're, we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to rule with Christ. And so he says, for those of us who are elders, that there will be there for if we finish the race, a crown of unfading glory to receive. Yeah, the weight, the work is hard, and yeah, the work is impossible, and yeah, the, the responsibility is burdensome, and yeah, it's, it's all overwhelming, and yeah, you can't do it. But if you will finish the race, if you will fight the fight, if you will press to the end, there awaits for you, brother, a crown of unfading glory. And how do we receive it? He tells us just before. Brother elders, how do you receive it? Iron City, how do you prepare yourself for the return of Christ? He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. That whatever ministry the Lord sets before you, Daniel, fulfill it. Iron City, whatever ministry sets before you, you fulfill it. Brother elders, whatever, whatever ministry the Lord sets before you, maybe it's not the most spectacular, maybe it's not the most prominent, maybe it's not what the world would consider to be the most successful or, or the most, uh, most uh, well-recognized or the most well-endowed. Whatever the Lord sets before you, fulfill the work of your ministry and you will receive a crown of unfading glory. Brothers and sisters, if I could give you one assurance this morning, the assurance would be this, God's grace upholds the weak because the Savior is going to be exalted, exalted. And all who are found in him will be exalted with him. Let me pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 